This is The Guardian. Today, what the sale of the Telegraph newspapers tells us about power in Britain. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It was founded in the 19th century by a British army colonel. And ever since... The Telegraph has sold itself as the voice of conservative Britain. Traditional. Proper. Popular in the home counties. With a loyalty to the party that has earned it the nickname the Tory Graph. The Daily Telegraph produced a weekend section to cover every conceivable interest from the countryside to the cinema, from fine art to fine wine. It was the first newspaper to report the outbreak of World War II. And it went on to build a reputation in fearless war reporting. It sensationally broke the MPs' expenses scandal. And it has remained an influential force in British media. But in recent weeks, the paper has found itself in the middle of a bitter tussle over its very ownership. Now, almost since its first edition in the 1850s, the Telegraph newspaper has printed each day with the motto, was, is and will be. What it won't be anymore is owned by the billionaire Barclay family. The entire business, which also includes the Spectator magazine, having been put up for sale after... As an Abu Dhabi investment firm looks to take over from the secretive Barclay family, the sale of the Telegraph has thrown up big questions about who owns the media in Britain and for what purpose. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in focus, the Barclays and the battle for the Telegraph. Jane Martinson, you're a Guardian columnist and the author of the book, You May Never See Us Again, which tells the story of the two Barclay brothers, David and Frederick. Now, they bought the Telegraph in 2004. Can you tell me just a bit more about them and how they made their fortune? So I was here, Nasheen, as media business editor and covered that, what seemed at the time like a really incredible auction in which they snatched the titles from Comrade Black um, and with a huge amount of competition. Their story was really fascinating even then, even though they were so secret that very few people knew about it. They were born just before the war, incredibly sort of poor background, actually. Uh, When they were born, their mother and father had five children altogether with these identical twin boys that were born in 1934. Their father died when they were 13. And they made their fortune essentially in the post-war London property market, as so many people did. So they were savvy? Yeah, savvy and politically savvy. Just a 
thing people know about them is that they became very close to Margaret Thatcher. They provided a house for her after she left office. They were already offshore by the end of the 70s before she came in. They'd moved to Monaco mainly. And by the time they bought the Telegraph in 2004, they'd owned the Ritz, they'd bought an island. They were these incredibly successful men. Welcome to the Ritz, one of the most expensive hotels in London. And you would have thought a nice little earner for the British taxman. But somehow, it doesn't quite work out like that. So they spent decades making deals, borrowing money, making money in property, and then, as you say, expanded into hotels close to the political elite, as it were. What size of fortune are we talking? Like, How big was it by the time they bought the Telegraph in 2004? When they first started buying newspapers... They were on the Sunday Times rich list, which had started in the 80s. Again, it's such a sort of sign of the times, you know, when loads of money was the thing. They were until, in fact, even this year, they were still in the top 20 with an estimated fortune of £7 billion based on the assets. And in fact, a sort of suggestion that they managed to keep their money and were always going to get bigger deals and, and more. What became apparent this year, many years you know, after they'd bought the Telegraph, is that that was based on a lot of debt. £7 billion, which obviously is an intense amount of money, but not actually liquid cash. No. So, Jane, what do we know about their politics through the years? The politicians they were close to, from Margaret Thatcher to Alastair McAlpine to Boris Johnson, who obviously was their very highly paid columnist until he became prime minister, mm. uh, were all on the conservative side. They then in latter years became, particularly Frederick actually, but they became very friendly with Nigel Farage and UKIP and actually celebrated on the morning of the Brexit referendum with a slap-up breakfast of kippers and champagne. Oh, yikes. Dare to dream that the dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom. They gave money, they donated to charity and they were very, very, very anti the EU and taxation. So didn't like to pay their taxes. I think it's absolutely outrageous. These are incredibly wealthy men who don't pay British tax, who live in their tax haven island. So the Barclays bought the Telegraph in 2004 and they're not known as newspaper men. And as we know, the last two decades haven't been easy for newspapers in an internet age. But what influence did they have in running the Telegraph day to day and how did they steward it through those, well, through the last 13 years of Tory government, royal weddings and deaths and Brexit and so on? So almost every editor has said in, in public platforms, including Parliament, you know, they're not like Rupert Murdoch, who was really hands on. They never physically came into many of their editorial buildings. They would always bring their editors in for lunch at the Ritz and they disappeared into their lift going up to their suite and said, you may never see us again. And most of them never did. What is also pretty clear is that the interests of the Telegraph and the reporting often coincided with some of the issues that were happening with the family at the time. I mean, Brexit, the Telegraph already Brexit. Um, Boris Johnson had already come back from Brussels where he'd been reporting on bendy bananas for the Telegraph before they bought it. But there were lots of other stories. The one that, that became very well known was when a really highly regarded 
political commentator Peter Oborn left mm. because there'd been a huge story and scandal broken by the Centre of Investigative Journalism and The Guardian on the HSBC files about HSBC, the bank. It was a huge story, the kind of story that all other competitors followed, with the exception of The Telegraph. And their reporting was so different that it led Peter Oborn to start checking what had been written before and he left and said it they were actually pursuing a sort of fraud on their readers. Well, the headlines about tax avoidance began with the scandal at HSBC and its Swiss banking arm. And today, the ripples from that story extended still further when The Telegraph's chief political commentator very publicly resigned. Peter Oborn claimed he'd become increasingly concerned about the paper's news values, especially when it came to HSBC, a valued advertiser. The paper said they utterly refute the allegations and say the division between advertising and editorial operation has, quote, always been fundamental to our business. And they described Mr Oborn's statement as astonishing. So, Jane, the brothers were famously close until they very famously weren't. Can you tell me what happened? So they were mirror twins. One parted his hair on the left and one on the right, which was the only way other people could tell them apart because they dressed identically, they finished each other's sentences. They not only worked together and built this incredible, you know, real rags-to-riches success story, actually, and then succession-like wealth. So Frederick had one daughter who was 20 years younger than her oldest cousins, um, who had been, even by the... 80s were really, when she was a child, were really starting to get quite involved, the older two, Aidan and Howard, in the business. So comes the 90s, David's really not very well, thinks he's going to die. Essentially, they agree, the twin brothers, to split the business, to sort of, you know, set up the succession. But they don't divide the empire 50-50. One of the key things about the Barclay family finances is the sheer overwhelming complexity of it the number of companies and trusts but essentially they divide it not 50 50 mm. as mirror twins but 75 percent goes to david's sons and 25 percent goes to frederick's daughter this he would later describe after the big feud as the greatest mistake of his life what actually happened is they then fell out hugely the money was becoming difficult. Various parts of their business were just not making enough money to partly to pay off the debts that they'd built up. So money was getting tight. They then fell out over how they should divide it with the youngest son, Alistair, becoming more involved in the business. As this was going on, though, Frederick basically put his daughter um, in as a director of the Ritz. During that time, however, he became suspicious that his conversations were known about to his nephews and other family members when he didn't understand how. So they fitted in a CCTV camera and discovered that the youngest son of David, his twin brother, was bugging this very, very private conservatory at the Ritz Hotel. So private, it's not on any map of um, any sort of drawing of the Ritz Hotel. And he would sit in there with his cigars and speak to advisors and his daughter. And a thousand hours of recorded conversations. 
Secretly filmed inside London's Ritz Hotel, this is the moment Alistair Barclay, the nephew of billionaire businessman Sir Frederick Barclay, is seen handling a covert listening device. Released by Sir Frederick's lawyers, it is key evidence in a bitter high court battle between the 85-year-old and members of his brother's family over allegations of commercial espionage on a vast scale. He then, as you can imagine, went bananas, went to the law, used a huge amount of money, ended up spending seven and a half million on the whole case. It's sort of ironic, you know, the, the use of the law all through their career and then when it came to it, they used the law against each other and that's what made everything more public. It's a completely fractured family and then... During this time, am I right in understanding David also dies and they're not talking? That was January the 10th, 21. David dies of COVID and it's a real shock. I mean, he'd been so isolated, but he had come into London. Uh, Frederick doesn't go to his twin brother's funeral. Very few people do. And he issues this statement, which I still find is actually quite a moving statement about, you know, we may never see each other again, but how close they were. And yeah, relations never really recovered. What impact did all this family drama have on the business? So what becomes really clear is despite um, protestations that sort of money was coming in, they were trying to get money back from HMRC, for example, that actually there was some issues about the debts coming due. So there were all sorts of signs, which was obvious even before the final dramatic moment. So in June of this year, Lloyds Bank went public with the fact not only that the debt was enormous, they were uh, owed £1.2 um, But actually, that debt dated back from more or less the Telegraph days when they they spent 400 million more than they wanted to. And that's a point that the Barclay family realised that they don't have that kind of cash to pay that debt back. And so Lloyds Bank takes the Telegraph titles as collateral. Lloyds actually, you talk to people there, they were really nervous of the reaction because you think, I mean, when can you remember a bank ever taking over a national newspaper? They thought it would be a huge outcry, but it was the amount of that money that they owed. That's how bad the finances had got. In terms of what happens next, why does the Telegraph Media Group, which also includes The Spectator, why does it go up for sale? So really a way of Lloyd's trying to recoup any of its money. They basically have an auction. They put it into receivership. They have to seize it in order to try to recoup any of this money. They'd already written off. They had no way idea that they were going to get back $1.2 billion. A big, slow-moving deal process in order to just get as much money as possible. They're still hugely attractive to actually all very, very wealthy men, we discover. Well, and it is a pretty big deal, isn't it? Because newspapers don't come up for sale very often. Can you give me a quick run through the serious bidders who are lining up to buy the titles? We've had so many. I mean, the, you know, the, the Lord Rothermere, the owner of the Daily Mail titles, Rupert Murdoch knows he wouldn't be allowed to take over the Telegraph because he owns the Times and the Sun uh, newspaper groups. But he is desperate for the Spectator, which is seen as this sort of real, um, you know, jewel in the crown. Axel Springer, National World. And of course, let's not forget, among the very wealthy men 
who are really keen, is possibly the keenest of all, so I'm told, Sir Paul Marshall. So the owner of GB News, the right-wing news channel, so he was also interested. What happens next? The Barclay family kept trying to make a new offer to Lloyd's. And Lloyd's consistently says, well, show us the money, essentially. When we see the money, you can, you know, if you pay off your debt, great. We don't really... Lloyd's, imagine, is a regulated bank trying to sell the paper, which is still... You know, it's called the Tory graph. It's the House Bible of the Conservative Party. And we're about to go into a highly, you know, a really difficult election year for the Conservative Party. Um, So huge power, not where a bank wants to be. Eventually, this deal comes up that they not just to pay part of the money, but to pay off the whole 1.2 billion. And they do this with this incredibly complex deal. And this involves this firm called Redbird. Jane, who are they? Redbird IMI. Now, Redbird is an American private equity group fronted by um, the ex-head of CNN, Jeff Zucker, an American. But 75% of the money comes from IMI, which is a an Abu Dhabi fund. It's not a sovereign wealth fund, but it's, a, it's basically owned by a ruling family um, connected to Shank Manzor, actually, the uh, owner of Manchester City. And this move marks some kind of a positive change in the bank's situation. Lloyd's, in fact, had taken control of the Telegraph and the Spectator magazine in the month of June. But an auction was expected to bring in only about half of the money that was owed, that is about £1.2 billion. Lloyd's might now get £500 more million. Pounds. The Barclays got £600 million loan from Redbird IMI, a joint venture in the United Arab Emirates using the Telegraph and other titles as security. There were a lot of champagne bottles popping in the Lloyd's headquarters when this deal came through. So on the face of it, everyone wins. The Barclays pay back their debt, Lloyd's get their money and they don't have to be in charge of a newspaper. But there is a pretty big catch. The Telegraph is now effectively owned, albeit through this complex deal, owned by Abu Dhabi's ruling family. How has that been received within the Tory establishment where, you know, as you've said, this is a paper of huge influence among conservatives? Oh, it's so interesting. I mean, if you look at what's happening with the Conservative Party anyway, which is really, I mean, it, it is a bit rats in the sack at the moment. And what really seems to me fascinating is that this telegraph, this fight for the telegraph and the spectator is part of that battle. Whoever takes over the telegraph and spectator gets a ringside seat in that voice of the right going forward in Britain. Because it's worth remembering that's where Tory MPs, ministers will speak. They'll, they'll, they'll go there to the telegraph. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, more importantly as well, not only will they speak, they really believe that they're, it's their Conservative Party members. Mm-hmm. So w- whatever the readership of the Telegraph is, if you're a member of the, you know, the committee, the local party, you read the Telegraph um, nine times out of ten. So that's what makes it, you know, really important to elected politicians. And there's obviously been a big pull of people who are 
who raised um, their voices against. I mean, even Lord Moore, Charles Moore as well, who, you know, has a particularly unique role because he edited all three titles, The Telegraph, Sunday Telegraph and Spectator. And he wrote a damning piece about uh, what, you know, what he called state control being sold to Abu Dhabi. If we try to nationalise a newspaper in this country, any newspaper, any national newspaper, it would be regarded as a, a scandalous interference with press fee- freedom. But this is um, trying to nationalise, uh, allowing a foreign government which doesn't really have press freedom and is an autocracy mm. um, to uh, to own it. And um, th- this would be incompatible with press freedom. So a lot of outrage from grandees in the Tory party, it's fair to say, and a lot of suspicion over the new ownership. And then there's the culture minister who took a look at this deal and decided to refer it to the competition regulators. But what power does the government really have to intervene or to stop this deal? That's a really good question, because there are different views on this. There's some some of the um, Conservative MPs have talked about the National Security and Investment Act, which was brought in by Boris Johnson. Mm. Um, But there is this Enterprise Act, which specifically has this clause about media plurality, freedom of expression. And that is a difficult place when, as I say, if it's majority funded by a state which has a terrible reputation for its treatment of journalists and its belief in a free press. Well, Rolf makes a very interesting point. I think whether it be ITV or be it... um newspaper like the Telegraph, which is currently up for sale. So what is the, what is the motivation of someone acquiring that? And whilst, whilst we would assume they wouldn't seek to sort of censor what was going on, do they have a different view on what, what creative content is, what news is, or what stories they want to tell, and what obligations exist for them? Um, it's not something we've had to really consider before, but I think in a, in a market where these media assets are attractive to global investors, um, we shouldn't be unconcerned about what the motivations of those investors might be in buying those companies. Because it's not like a football club. You know, when sort of really controversial people take over football clubs, football supporters tend to be ecstatic. They don't really care. Where the money is coming from. Or... Actually, all they care about is they're going to get some really great players that they can go and watch every week. It's, it really is different. Ofcom, the media regulator, which will be key here, and then the um, CMA, Competition and Markets uh, Authority, have till the end of January to give their guidance to the Culture Secretary. That's where it gets really interesting, the timing-wise, and will be really interesting what she uses, Lucy Fraser, the Culture Secretary, to decide on what grounds she could block it or not. It's looking tricky. But it's interesting because once you unravel, as you've said, this Redbird IMI, and it obviously has these very close links, I mean, it's owned by essentially the brother to the ruler of Abu Dhabi. Yeah, Deputy Prime Minister. Deputy Prime Minister himself. But wouldn't it not seem an incredible risk on their part to stump up all this money for the Barclay family's debt, all this bad debt, and then come away not owning the thing they wanted to buy? Yeah, huge risk. And also, even if you're worth as much money as Sheikh Mansour, is you don't want to spend 1.2 billion thinking it's never going to be paid back. So, of course, they must have done all the kinds of due diligence. There are lots of questions about that deal machine. And actually, you know, one of the things about, which I really feel passionately about, is that we have to have greater transparency in this country about how these deals are done. Speaking of which, how has The Telegraph been covering its fate in in the paper itself? You know, having obviously covered the story 
um, a lot, but particularly in the last, since the end of 2019 with the sale of the Telegraph. And then these huge scandals with the bugging case, um, all in the law courts. And there's been nothing about the Barclays or anything in the Telegraph. And then at the point where Redbird put out its statement saying, we will be the owners of the newspaper titles, there's actually been so much coverage about it at Charles Moore's own column they have also interviewed Jeff Sucker there was a sudden explosion of interest when for years before that there'd been absolutely nothing about the fate of the Telegraph the fate of the Barclay brothers that seems to have slightly died down now but let's see what happens over the next coming weeks and months Coming up why does it matter who owns the biggest media companies in Britain? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Jane, what does all this say about the state of media plurality and transparency in Britain? And why does this deal matter so much? I think it really matters because in a way it's a line in the sand. I think you can't cover the media industry without really thinking the idea that proprietors have no influence at all is outlandish, really. But I'm not saying that proprietors, any proprietors, even Rupert Murdoch, will call and say, you must do this to an editor. It's not how it works. Um, But, you know, influence and shifting and sort of, you know, how you decide what's important to your readers, all that stuff, it all aligns. And it's just really important. And if we allow 
such important titles. And for everyone saying, well, young people only look at TikTok now. Well, actually, the people that vote for the Conservative Party and who will have a say in who leads them, if, as the polls predict, they aren't going to get in next year, a lot of them read The Telegraph and that has a voice that really matters. And I think if we don't have a fair and open and transparent process about how this nation state or, you know, someone connected to the ruling family with, and it's not just any country, this isn't against Abu Dhabi particularly. I do think a country which has a really poor reputation for freedom of the press that, you know, harasses its journalists. And I think that's a really difficult line. Of course, Rupert Murdoch, you know, has used his influence and other media proprietors to back the policies and the causes they believe in whether that's against the EU or against taxation or particular governments. But I think there's a geopolitical angle about a nation state. I really do. I, You know, of course, media influence is always going to be with us. Um, and, you know, if, if you own a newspaper, that's, that's why you get to play in the sandpit. It really isn't to make lots of money, as I think the story of the Barclay brothers um, shows. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, why would Abu Dhabi want to buy it, given everything you've said? not to make loads more money, that's fine, I don't need that. Um, It is for the influence and what comes with having this incredible sort of, this voice. It's just one of those cases, and again, I keep coming back in this story always to the issue of transparency. If you have a world in which international capital and offshore finance is so difficult to follow, to rule, to regulate by nation states, that's something I think we as a country, actually I think lots of countries yeah. need to really get together and work out whether that's right whether that's exactly what we want the free flow of money is all very well but when it means there's no controls then i think that becomes much more problematic and then finally jane i mean the telegraph has played such an influential role in our politics our culture what does this deal mean for its future for its journalism and do you think it's still going to be the influential, formidable force it once was. I think there'll be lots of readers of The Guardian and listeners to um, this fabulous podcast, Nasheen, who will think, oh, why does it matter? You know, whether it's really rich, you know, rich men like Rupert Murdoch, like Lord Rothermere, like everybody else. It's all the same if you're, you know, any of these newspaper groups. We need to make sure we know who is owning them and to really discover why and what they're doing. And I think the more we allow anyone to buy a national paper, uh, the more we sort of give up as a culture in trying to really, you know, hold the powerful to account. Jane, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nasheen. It's a really important story. And, you know, thank God for things like Today in Focus. That was Jane Martinson. Her book, You May Never See Us Again, The Barclay Dynasty, is available now. That's it for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal. The producer was Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 